0: a huge development in the case of a California man we've been following. Prosecutors used DNA evidence to name a new suspect. Ricky Davis spoke after he was released from prison yesterday.
1: In 2005, Davis was sentenced to 16 years to life for the murder of 54-year-old Jane Hilton. She was found stabbed 29 times. For nearly a decade, he has always maintained his innocence
2: in this brutal murder, and now he has a chance to create a new life for himself.
1: so many things I can not even tell you. I've forgotten more things than I even remember. I, I miss this beautiful country. You know what I mean? I miss the trees. I miss everything. I miss fresh air. You can never make up for it. I realize that. You just pick up the pieces and, and move forward and make the best of what's left.
0: I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. This podcast also has an opportunity to take the listeners into some of the most unique cases that have oftentimes perhaps an unexpected ending. And that is one of the cases that we're gonna talk about today. That is the case of what we call people versus Ricky Davis. For the listeners in the last episode, we spoke with Ricky Davis and we spoke with his attorney from the Northern California Innocence Project, Melissa O'Connell. Today, we're gonna talk to individuals that were involved in the case that involved the district attorney, the investigators and the crime lab. My guests today are El Dorado County District Attorney, Vern Pearson, District Attorney Investigators Kirk Campbell and Monica Zykowski, and District Attorney Crime Lab Criminalist Angel Shaw. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining me. I'll start with you, um, Vern. You're the District Attorney of El Dorado County. Can you just kind of tell the listeners a little about yourself?
2: Well, I, I, I'm the, uh, as you said, the DA in El Dorado County. I have been since uh, 2007. And uh, I've been a prosecutor for right at about thirty years. I've been uh, both a deputy DA, deputy attorney general, as well as the chief assistant DA, and uh, and as I said, district attorney for the last several years in El Dorado County.
0: Great, thank you. How about you, Kirk Campbell? You've been on here before, but tell the listeners once again.
1: I'm a lieutenant in the uh, homicide gang unit of the of the uh, Sacramento County DA's office, and. Uh, Prior to working with uh, the DA's office, I worked for the uh, Sacramento Police Department, where I retired as a supervisor in the homicide unit.
0: Excellent, Monica.
3: I'm an investigative assistant at the Sacramento DA's office. Um, I've been working on DNA projects for about the last ten years. Most recently, um, genealogy. Excellent, and then Angel. I'm a
4: criminalist in the biology section at the District Attorney's Crime Lab. I've been doing DNA for over 20 years now, and I've been at the district attorney's lab for almost 15 years. So let me just first off tell the listeners a little bit a little
0: bit about this case. Um, on the last episode, we talked about that as well, but on the early morning hours of July 7th, 1985, 54-year-old Jane Hilton was found stabbed to death in her El Dorado Hills home. It was a uh, brutal stabbing. She had been stabbed approximately 30 times. Uh, she was found at her residence by Ricky Davis, his then girlfriend, Connie Dahl, as well as uh, Miss Hilton's daughter. An autopsy in that case revealed that she had suffered multiple stab wounds. Um, there was clear evidence of defensive wounds. And uh, there was also of significance, which we'll talk about today, a bite mark on her upper left shoulder. The case remained unsolved until 1999 when the case was reopened as a cold case, and with that, uh, Vern, I'm going to pitch it back to you and ask you: first of all, when the crime occurred in 1985, and when it was reopened, were you a member of the El Dorado County DA's office?
2: Uh, no, I was not. I was a it, when it was reopened in '99. I was a deputy attorney general, and uh, it, and really had no involvement in the case until several years later when I was approached by the California Innocence Project. And at that time it was a, uh, that was in um, several years later and at at a point in time when Ricky Davis was, had been convicted and his conviction had been affirmed on appeal.
0: Okay, so why don't you tell us, tell us from when you got involved in the case and you actually were aware of kind of the facts that led to the conviction of Mr. Davis um, kind of walk the listeners through what you know about the investigation from 1985.
2: Well, so in 1985, when this, when this case uh, first came to light, law enforcement was called as El Dorado Hill's home. Uh, Ricky Davis and Connie Dahl were both there, as well as uh, the victim's uh, daughter. All three of them said that they had left. Uh, Ricky and his, his girlfriend at the time, Connie, said they had gone to a party for, for several hours And that as they arrived back at the party or from the party to the house uh, where where, uh, Miss Hilton was living at the time that they um, met up with Autumn, that she had arrived about the same time. And then after they entered the house, they found um, her body in a horrific crime scene um, and they notified law enforcement. Um, Ricky, I would say, was probably the... Prime suspect of law enforcement at the time for the sheriff's department because he lived in the house. There was also a uh, uh, Miss Hilton's um, estranged husband that was looked at, and um, you know the forensic evidence back at that time period. They they processed it, um, the scene um, took a bunch of pictures. It's now nowhere near 1985. The standard of care is nowhere near the same as it is today or it has been for, for many years, uh, but ultimately the case went cold and they did not have sufficient evidence to charge anyone uh, with responsibility for it.
0: Okay, so then it went cold and, and did it, it went cold until about 1999,
2: right? Correct. In, in 1999, uh, the, the case was reopened and, uh, and there was a, a several different things that took place at that time, including trying to look back at the physical evidence, as well as re-interviewing um, Ricky Davis, as well as Connie Dahl. Um, Connie was interviewed uh, three times. And on the third time she was interviewed, um, she was confronted with the a, a bite mark that, uh, that there was evidence of a bite mark on the victim's shoulder. And she said that uh, she may have bit the victim and and that um, she participated with Ricky and Autumn in the murder of her mother, of, of uh, Miss Hilton.
4: So
0: this is 14 years after the homicide. It's reopened. Connie Dahl, um, am I correct that she had some of her own challenges with drug usage and things like that?
2: Yeah, she had a significant history of drug use at that time. And then subsequent to that, And she ultimately, uh, by the time I was aware of the case, she was deceased um, as a result of that drug use.
0: But basically, she implicates Ricky Davis, claims that she actually herself had bitten Miss Hilton. And then what happened then? After this, you know, she's she's given up Mr. Davis as being essentially the killer. What happened at that point?
2: Well, she... uh, she gets an immunity agreement. The case ultimately goes to trial and she testifies at trial consistent with her statement that um, she participated in the murder, uh, that Ricky Davis was was uh, angry about um, some things that had taken place that night. And that's what ultimately led to the murder. And I think it's important at this point to, to talk about that, you know, over the last 60 years, law enforcement has been trained in a, a particular types of techniques to, uh, uh, to elicit confessions um, from people. When Connie was re-interviewed the three times, she was interviewed in, in the type of manner that most would con- people would consider to be pretty aggressive and can, I would call it confession driven. In other words, uh, convincing her that there was evidence there that would implicate her And that she would do the best for herself by confessing to her participation, which she ultimately did. And we can go in a little bit more detail into that um, with the next stage as well.
0: For the listener's purpose, at the time that she gave up Mr. Davis and claimed he was the killer, this nightgown that the victim was wearing, fair to say it was a critical piece of evidence, but it was also heavily blood-soaked. And so it didn't provide any real evidence for the trial of Ricky Davis.
2: Yes, and the trial of Ricky Davis. So, the the, the crime scene was it was a horrific crime scene with blood, uh, things that moved around, and there was a a a clear impression by the detectives back in 1985 as well as in 1999 that the crime scene had been staged. In other words, that things had been moved around um, and. uh uh, and they didn't have an explanation as to why but because it had been staged it tends to suggest that somebody who had access to the house would have a reason to change things and and so that's part of what brought more attention and focus on on ricky davis and connie doll
0: so mr davis was convicted in 2005 and he was sentenced to what mr pearson
2: uh, he, he he was convicted of murder and he was uh, sentenced to a life term. I can't remember the specific uh, uh, sentence, but it was you know a, a life term, and um, and he was uh, served, continuing to serve that life term when I was approached by the Innocence Project um, in 2013. Regarding- okay, so
0: just to just to back up before his conviction, Mr. Davis testified at his own trial and all along his claim that he was not involved in this murder, correct?
2: Yes, and, and I, I think part of to understand the case and the trial, um, Ricky maintained his innocence in 1985 and through the trial. And he was, uh, he, he had a, a, a something of a prior criminal history. Um, he, I, I think it's fair to say, and I know you've interviewed him, he, he's made perhaps something of a hothead um, and was, uh, uh, may have conducted himself in, in during the course of the trial, you, you know, and you put yourself in the context of this and the whole thing we're talking about, you know, in hindsight, we know all of us here know he had nothing to do with that murder. And he's sitting, going to trial and listening to his then uh, former girlfriend say that he participated with her in this horrific murder and he acted out uh, during the course of the trial. And I think that that was uh, certainly to his detriment, but he maintained his innocence throughout.
0: So you get approached by the Northern California Innocence Project, uh, specifically Melissa O'Connell, sometime around 2012, 2013. Why don't you just kind of tell the listeners, you know, had you worked with the Innocence Project before? Kind of how did this come about?
2: I, I had worked with the Innocence Project before. Um, they had approached me uh, uh, on a couple different cases, and they were cases where um, I, I really was somewhat suspect of, probably the best way to put it, of their, their concerns. Um, and I was in this one as well. And, and so, but I sat down, I met with Melissa O'Connell, uh, and it, they had some transcripts of the interviews. And they asked, uh, they were asking for two things. One, they wanted some forensic evidence specifically, I think it was the, the nightgown and some other things. They were asking for it to be uh, retested. Um, and, but they also asked if I would read the transcripts of the interviews of, of Connie Dahl that led to, to uh, her admission that she was involved in it and, and you know, her testimony at trial against Ricky. And frankly, I read the transcripts, and there was passages within them that I was very bothered by. And um, I was bothered by it, but in all candor, he was a person convicted of murder under these circumstances, gone to trial. So I was bothered by the way the interviews were done, but I, I still felt at that point that he was responsible for, for, for this murder. Um, on the other hand, I was bothered enough by it and the request seemed reasonable in terms of the way the, the the forensic evidence was not it didn't look like it was really fully analyzed the way it could have or should have been done um, so as a result of that um, i contacted uh, sacramento county da's office and um, uh, specific i think it was jill spriggs that i spoke with first and said that we would be requesting that um they take portions of it and the forensic evidence and subject it to a a uh, a, a new a fresh look
0: obviously since 2005 and now we're moving to 2012-13 you know forensic evidence has evolved even more so since the time of, of his conviction correct
2: well yeah there's there's no question that the, uh from jurisdiction to jurisdiction the techniques evolved some faster than others um and but but overall the science of forensic evidence analysis has changed dramatically during the, the you know the period of time from the uh, 1985 when the murder first t- took place uh up until you know 2012 2013
0: okay so angel i'm going to kind of bring you into the conversation now and Before we kind of get into the specifics of this, you you mentioned your background, you've been a criminalist for a long time in the biology unit. Maybe kind of tell the listeners, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the biology unit? What kinds of cases do you work on? What kinds of evidence do you look at?
4: Um, We basically screen uh, any kind of evidence for, we could either screen for biological fluids like um, saliva and blood. Uh, If we find any, we can test for DNA, or we just go directly to DNA analysis on those items. Um, It could be anything from burglaries to rapes to homicides. And how would you say the science has
0: kind of evolved? Tell me again, when did you start as a DNA criminalist? 1999. Okay. So we've come a long way, um, but how, how would you say, how have we come since the time you've been a
4: criminalist? Uh, I've just seen DNA analysis go from being uh, faster, um, more efficient. Uh, We can get more DNA from uh, items. It's more sensitive. So uh, we can test for specific DNA for males. So it definitely there are a lot more tools for us to help us do our DNA analysis.
0: Yeah, I remember my early days was, you know, if you had a blood sample, you didn't know who left it, a man or a woman. And now we know, or you can tell if it's a man or a woman, it's just one example. Before I kind of get into this case, maybe you can tell the listeners, what are some of the interesting items of evidence you've ever examined?
4: Oh, um, well, I have actually gotten, sometimes we get garbage and I won't get to, in the specifics why we get that. Uh, and one of the most interesting things I've gotten the most DNA out of is a Q-tip, used Q-tip swab.
0: Fair to say, I remember learning on my early days about this thing called Locard's principle that pretty much everything you touch, you can leave potentially some biological evidence on. Is is that still true to this day?
4: Yes. Especially with the DNA analysis being more sensitive. Uh, If you, you know, we get evidence from that's touch DNA, you just leave a little bit of DNA, uh, something of your cells behind and we're going to get DNA from it. Okay. All right. So,
0: Let's just talk about this case a little bit. Um, you were assigned this case in 2013, if my uh, notes are correct. You know, kind of walk the listeners through kind of what you were looking at, the challenges you might have had, and um, kind of go from there.
4: So I don't know what you guys think of when you hear nightgown. Um, when I got assigned the case, it actually was between another criminalist and myself that uh, we would get this case because two two uh, cases came from the Innocence Project and uh, so since this one involved a nightgown my uh, fellow co-worker said oh I can't really do that one I just hurt my knee I don't know if I'm going to have to be like you know leaning over the evidence so I'd rather take the other case so I ended up with it and when I saw nightgown I'm thinking something maybe like a flannel nightgown something kind of simple so I opened it and it was all crumpled up and I spread it out and it actually was a little more like if you had envisioned like a house dress, it was very large sort of like um, this little kind of date me uh, what Mrs roper would have worn in um, three's company. So I spread it out and it was very crusty and blood-stained, and it was actually moldy and so it was a very big item of evidence to test. So. You know, did, were you able, when you opened it
0: up, I assume as a criminalist, you're trying to figure out, you knew that she had been bitten, correct? Correct. Did you have any, uh, you knew she'd been bitten on the back? One of the back shoulders, I
4: can't remember. If it's yeah, the right or the one left. Of the, one of the back so did shoulders. You, and, okay. Um, I was asked to look for, I mean, if I knew she was bitten, I would be looking for saliva. So we have a test that we can do to detect possible saliva not specific to saliva because it's a component that's found in other body fluids. So I went through the process of looking for it, but one of the issues was that I knew which shoulder it was on, but when I spread this item out, it had the nightgown had been cut across the shoulders to remove it from the body. And when I actually looked at it, the tag wasn't located in the location that would indicate which was the front or the back of the nightgown. So basically I was like, I don't know which shoulder is, which I just have these areas that are kind of cut near the shoulder. So I basically had to test all of those areas and look to see if I could find this possible saliva. Okay. Now, before you got it, cause you got it in
0: 2013, I think had it been looked at by any other labs and I don't need to go into the, who the lab was, but, and were any prior labs able to get any real evidence off of it?
4: No, I think um, at the time, the fact that it was so blood-soaked was kind of overwhelming in finding other DNA or the saliva. So they basically just tested it, saw that it was presumptive for possible blood, and that was basically all that they did at that time. Okay. So when you were kind of assigned this, you were specifically looking to
0: see if you could find anything associated with that bite mark, right? Correct. So you know, how much time, I don't, I'm not asking for specifics, but how much estimate would you say you worked on this nightgown um, at the request of Mr. Pearson in the Innocence Project to, to find some evidence?
4: Um, at the initial time, I would say days to weeks, um, the whole process of screening it, um, and at the time I did locate possible saliva, and then to take it from there to through the whole DNA process, it definitely took at least a few weeks to get through the whole thing and analyze the data. So then once you got through
0: the whole thing and you analyzed the data, you obviously knew that Mr. Davis had been convicted and was sitting in prison, right? Right. Okay, so what did you find when you when you analyzed that data?
4: So I had a, a couple areas where I had possible saliva. On one area, I, when I initially did our, our quantitation technique will tell us if male DNA is present. And since I w- the request was to see if Connie Dahl was on this bite mark, I had an area that indicated I had female DNA and I had another area that indicated I had actually male DNA, which was kind of surprising to me. So I thought, well, you know, this female DNA is possibly gonna come back to Connie. But when I went back and did the DNA testing, the female DNA came back to the victim and the other male profile, totally unknown male. Uh, Any references I had at the time to compare it to, no match. So we had no idea who this unknown male was, but I did have male DNA on one area of possible saliva.
0: And Byrne, just to be clear, part of the reason you were having angel do this specific item was because connie doll had claimed she had bit miss hilton during the process of the murder
2: yeah that's exactly right because in in the theory that had been developed by during in 1999 uh was that all three of them had been played some type of role um in in this murder connie ricky and autumn and uh in, in the course of that, she specifically said that she thought she bit, and she was vague about it. For, I think for the first time she said it, it was something to the effect of that she had a dream, something to the effect of that, that she had bit the victim uh, during the course of it, uh, something to that effect. So uh, so then obviously, if, if definitively we could say, and the bite mark was on her left shoulder, if we could identify the left shoulder, the location of the bite mark and find Connie's DNA at that location that it would tend to corroborate that story. If it was another person's uh, a particularly male DNA, it would tend to suggest that that um, uh, it wasn't Connie, maybe it was it, it was some other murder, and maybe the whole story was wrong, which is you know as the steps kind of went it it looked more and more like uh, something was wrong with the story that Connie had told
0: just to be clear. The testing shows it's not Connie doll. It's not Ricky Davis. Um, angel, you also did some fingernail scrapings, right?
4: Yes. But, um, let me go back and talk about what Vern just mentioned. The next challenge was that to figure out if we had this male DNA, which shoulder was it actually located on which section of the nightgown at this time, I only knew, uh, I didn't know which side was the front and which is the back. I only had it as an arbitrary section on the nightgown. So I actually had to go back to looking at the nightgown, looking at crime scene photos and comparing, there was a pattern, a flower pattern on the nightgown. And I needed to compare the flower pattern to the crime scene photos and figure out where, what, which shoulder this um, possible saliva was actually located on. And I actually did figure out that that saliva male unknown male was located on the back left shoulder.
0: Okay. So when you say the crime scene photos, you mean the photos taken of Miss Hilton at the time that her body was discovered with her actually wearing the nightgown and then comparing that to what you had developed through the DNA testing. Correct. Angel, you did some fingernail scrapings and of the victim, right? And sometimes that can prove valuable because if they've had, you know, we knew she had defensive wounds Um, were those fingernail scrapings of Ms. Hilton's of any value in evidence testing?
4: So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, and and let me go back, when we talk about how many hours I worked on this case, it was physically working in the lab and many, many, many hours of meetings. We met a lot of times trying to discuss what this evidence meant and who could it be, so one of the things we wanted to figure out is is, is there redundancy? Are, are we seeing this profile somewhere else and another area of the crime scene, uh, another piece of evidence? Um, one of the things we went back to was fingernail scrapings and there also was a fingernail that was um, collected from the scene. This was evidence that was previously tested at another laboratory um, with DNA at the time that was a little less sensitive. Um, wasn't male, the male specific DNA that I could test for now called YSTRs. So I went back to the fingernail scrapings and this fingernail and was actually able to get some, a male, very partial male specific profile off the fingernail itself. I didn't get anything uh, that was really detectable off the scrapings. Okay, but it was some kind of element of redundancy.
0: At least you knew that you had some male profile partial on the
4: fingernails and you know you have a male for sure on the white mark area and then when we compared them they were consistent with one another okay
0: so Vern you know what what do you do once you get this information you find out some pretty compelling information that um, questions the conviction of Mr. Davis
2: well we did We, we we did have the the Extraordinary work, really. Um, I think Angel downplays the level of, of expertise that she in in tediousness uh, into the work of what she performed. To to it's one thing to say you have saliva on a uh, male saliva on somewhere on a nightgown that this victim was wearing, which as we were talking about before, DNA. The practical reality of DNA is that it can, with modern technology, it can be, you can detect someone who may have been in contact with that nightgown, completely unrelated to the murder, Um, the ex-husband, somebody like that, we don't know. So, but nonetheless, you have a person who's convicted sitting in custody and uh, who's maintained their, their innocence and you have significant questions being raised about Um, uh, The the evidence that led to that conviction. Um, And at this point in time, no one who was involved in the original investigation uh, was was participating in what was happening at this point. It was an entirely new team. And based on on Angel's work and what we were seeing, um, we we had assigned a, a a very experienced cold homicide investigator, actually a couple of them. Uh, to and the direction that I gave them was essentially pretend that Ricky had uh, wasn't uh, convicted, start over, investigate this from beginning to end the same way you would any other cold homicide, and let's see what um, what comes of it. And um, during the course of uh, uh, of that investigation, there was. Uh, they saw more and more. They, so it, the, the forensic stuff that ain't, the work she did was really the thing that, 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 that put it back on the front burner. But then the, the work that they were doing in preparation, the innocence project came back, and uh, they wanted to file, they filed a motion. There was a hearing for a new trial. And in the preparation for that, that, that hearing, and uh, uh, and during the course of the hearing, you know, it really solidified the, the, the fact that it looked like there, we may have the wrong person in custody. We weren't convinced of that. I mean, you, you, you look at these cases and you're looking at them after the fact, you weren't involved in the original investigation. And, you know, there's some degree of a presumption that they must have done it right uh, because this person was convicted. But then you're seeing more and more things that are concerning. Uh, most notably the the forensic evidence, but also the coercive uh, uh, interview of Connie that led to her, you know, admission that she was involved in it. So, yeah, we were very concerned.
0: So you mentioned that the Innocence Project filed a motion for new trial. Angel, you testified, correct? Yes. And was that,
4: you know, a short testimony or how would you describe that? Um, I think it was almost a day. Um, and I think Fern will find this amusing, but I actually love to testify at the old courthouse in Placerville. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. is because there's a window in the courtroom and they often have it open. And so that really helps. Um, so it wasn't too bad of a day. It was rainy, um, but it was almost a whole day. And I just remember being very exhausted driving home. Okay. And then after
0: all of that, um, when the judge made a decision Vern, um, the judge granted the new trial motion. Okay. But it was some kind of element of redundancy. At least you knew that you had some male profile partial on the
4: fingernails and you know, you have a male for sure on the bite mark area. And then when we compared them, they were consistent with one another. Okay. So
0: Vern, you know, what, what do you do once you get this information, you find out some pretty compelling information that um, questions the conviction of Mr. Davis.
2: Well, we did we, we, we did have the the extraordinary work. Really, um, I think Angel downplays the level of, of expertise that she in in tediousness uh, into the work of what she performed. To to it's one thing to say you have saliva on a uh, male saliva on somewhere on a nightgown that this victim was wearing which as we were talking about before DNA the brachial reality of DNA is that it can with modern technology it can be you can detect someone who may have been in contact with that nightgown completely unrelated to the murder um, the ex-husband um, somebody like that we don't know so but nonetheless the the you have a person who's convicted sitting in custody and uh, who's maintained their their innocence. And you have significant questions being raised about um, uh, the the evidence that led to that conviction. Um, And at this point in time, no one who was involved in the original investigation uh, was, was participating in what was happening at this point. It was an entirely new team. And based on on Angel's work and what we were seeing, um, we we had assigned a a uh, very experienced cold homicide investigator, actually a couple of them, uh, to. And the direction that I gave them was essentially pretend that Ricky had uh, wasn't uh, convicted, start over, investigate this from beginning to end the same way you would any other cold homicide, and let's see what. Um, what comes of it. And um, during the course of, uh, uh, of that investigation, there was, uh, m- they saw more and more. They, so it, the forensic stuff that Aint, the work she did, was really the thing that, 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 that put it back on the front burner. But then the, the work that they were doing in preparation, the Innocence Project came back and uh, they wanted to file, they filed a motion, there was a hearing for a new trial. And in the preparation for that 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 hearing, and uh, uh, and during the course of the hearing, you know, the, it really solidified the the, the the fact that it looked like there, we may have the wrong person in custody. We weren't convinced of that. I mean, you 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 look at these cases, and you look at them after the fact. You weren't involved in the original investigation, and you know, there's some degree of a presumption that they must have done it right. Um, because this person was convicted, but then you're seeing more and more things that are concerning. Uh, it, most notably, the, the forensic evidence, but also the coercive uh, investig- uh, interview of Connie that led to her, you know, I- I admission that she was involved in it. So, I- I- yeah, we were very concerned.
0: So, you mentioned that the Innocence Project filed a motion for new trial. Angel, you testified, correct? Yes. And was that,
4: you know, a short testimony or how would you describe that? Um, I think it was almost a day. Um, and I think everyone will find this amusing, but I actually love to testify at the old courthouse in Placerville. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. is because there's a window in the courtroom and they often have it open. And so that really helps. Um, so it wasn't too bad of a day. It was rainy, um, but it was almost the whole day. And I just remember being very exhausted driving home. Okay. And
0: then after all of that, um, when the judge made a decision for, um, the judge granted the new trial motion.
2: So the judge grants the new trial motion. Um, I, I wasn't there during the course of the hearing, but I get debriefed by the people that are involved in it. And I keep asking the same question is who is, where did this male, um, saliva profile, where did this who is this person? Because they're not, there. whoever that unknown person was, we tried to compare it to, to anyone we thought might have been associated with the case um, and came up with nothing. And um, and so in my mind, and I remember meeting with Melissa and I said, I asked her, I said, you know, this case inside and out, you've spoken to Ricky, who's, who's the donor? And um, and I told her, we will reinvestigate this case and we are reinvestigating the case as though it's an unsolved case and that Ricky didn't do it. Um, and that's been the direction that the investigators have um, not to just prove that Ricky did it, but to prove someone did it and identify this. And, and, and then I recall it, it, you know, the work that your office was doing, the work that, that my office was doing in other cases with genetic genealogy, and that ultimately, you know, led to the request of, um, of your office is to work with us and see if we can use that, you know, very novel technique to try to identify the, the donor. I'm just glad to be out. I'm, I'm setting everything behind me.
0: Without investigative genetic genealogy, we would not be here today.
1: They're angels, they really are.
2: And there they came into my life when I really needed them more than anything in the world.
0: So the new trial motion was granted in April of 2019, and that's about a year after. Uh, the arrest of the golden state killer east Area rapist angel i'm just going to give you a shout out here if my memory's right you did the testing on the golden state killer case as well at least some of it
4: some of it some, some references in that yes
0: okay so within weeks of that new trial Vern, you came to me and our office and you asked us to kind of follow that that road to figure out who did that who did it be, belong to because the question Really was is Ricky really involved or is he actually innocent? And so that's when you asked us to to take the next logical step now and do genetic genealogy on that on that uh, bite mark evidence, right?
2: Yes, that's exactly right. And and so there was a a, a team from uh, 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 Joe Ramsey, Sandra Bice, John Gaines. Uh, team from my office, and they started working with, uh, I think it was first, the first meeting was with Kirk, um, and then Monica, and uh, they, they tried to, st- you know, do the classic stuff, and I know you've described it before in terms of what you do to identify uh, an unknown profile.
0: Okay, so let me kind of turn to Kirk and Monica, bring you into the conversation about the genealogy, and before we you know, we're, we're going to be very mindful that um, about what we talk about in this particular case. But in general, Kirk and Monica, since the time of the Golden State Killer, which you worked on in late 2017, early 2018, how many cases, just an estimate, ballpark, um, not just Sacramento but across this country, would you estimate you've worked on to help with genetic genealogy? Kirk, I'll start with you.
1: Um, yeah, a little over, little over 20 cases now.
0: And and tell us just in general, the types of cases that, you know, you've had and the types of evidence you've been able to recover the genealogy profile from.
1: Um, The, uh, you know, we've done a number of cases, you know, the typical cases are homicide, sexual assaults, but we've also worked with our own coroner's office as well as uh, coroner's offices uh, in in California on identifying uh, victims of homicide as well, unidentified remains cases. So we've had, you know, kind of a, a, a both, you know, working those types of cases, and uh, you know, the typical um, sample we're going to get is a uh, is a mixture sample uh, involving um, both the DNA from the, the suspect uh, as as well as the victim, and typically these are on uh, on sexual assault type, uh, uh, you know, homicides or, or rapes.
0: Okay so and then you guys have kind of explained in the past episodes kind of what is it what does a genealogy case look like but monica um, i'm going to ask you in these cases that you've worked and not talking about this specific one um, what are some of the challenges when you when you get a sample and you send it out to the laboratory to try to get this i'm just going to call it a genealogy profile and then you start building family trees maybe kind of explain What's the purpose of the family tree? And then what's the challenges that you've seen on some of these dozens of cases you've worked on?
3: So we can use public genealogy databases to compare our unknown crime scene profile to you know, basically thousands of people um, that have opted into these databases. So we're, we're basically trying to comp- um, determine relationships based on um, the shared DNA. Of these people in the databases and our our crime scene sample and to do that we essentially build family trees looking for the right relationship which you know sounds kind of easy in the beginning i thought it would be really easy but it it can be you know quite challenging Um, we run into a lot of pitfalls or or roadblocks like um you know missing records affairs adoptions misattributed parentage it's um what's that you know, mean well on paper uh, the uh mother and father of a a person you know might be one thing but in reality the dna might tell us something different so it can be so the, aunt,
0: so the aunt the aunt is allegedly the mother but in fact she's biologically the aunt would be an example
3: yes that's a that's a good example or you know perhaps a, a couple is married and a child is, is born of a couple, but the father perhaps might not be the, the same person on the birth certificate. Okay. So, um, you know, it can it can present challenges. We have to be really careful and meticulous when we do our research and, and make sure it's accurate um, in order to get to the right answer.
0: So in your crisis work, Kirk and Monica, You know, how, when you say you're building the family trees, just to give an example, how far back in history have you had to go? What's the farthest back you've had to go to try to start building out those family trees? That makes sense.
1: Um, Well, sometimes we've gone back to the, you know, very early 1800s, even the late 1700s to find that common ancestor, what we call the most recent common ancestor between our, our match and our, the profile of our offender. Because uh, you once you identify that common ancestor, then you build down from that common ancestor to uh, potentially identify your uh, your your suspect. So it all depends on how close your matches are. You know, if you have a if you have a closer match, then you don't have to go back nearly as far, as far in time. If you if your matches are very very low, then uh, then you have to go um, you know much further back in time to find that common ancestor.
0: So I would imagine. Um, when you're going back to the 1800s that that's where the challenges are with finding records.
1: Yes, that's, uh, it, that, that's exactly it, you know, oftentimes, you know, you're going back to uh, the, the, the ancestor you're locating is in a different country, you know, so it depends on, you know, what kind of records that country had, uh, you know, some countries have, have uh, much better records than others so all those, you know, the further back in time. Um, you know it's much more much more challenging and especially if uh, those records no longer are from the united states
0: okay fair enough so why don't you tell us in terms of this case um, you know you obviously the two of you were assigned to work with fern's office the investigators from there just in general kind of walk us through uh, kind of what the process was
1: no it was just it was just that you know we we met with them uh, they were very interested in, in, you know, helping out and doing the genealogy, uh, both Joe and Sandra were just great to work with. Um, and you know, we, we did this genealogy together. Uh, and you know, it's a process you work as a team, and uh, everybody can do it simultaneously with the, you know, the software we use, uh, you don't have to be at work, you can be doing it from home. Um, and it's, it's just a collaborative effort. And um, you know, as we start building further back down, uh, getting to, you know, present day w- during that time period, uh, in the mid eighties, when, uh, we'd hopefully be uh, locating our, our suspect. That's obviously when Joe and Sandra are, you know, more now taking the lead and looking at, uh, at people cause they're familiar, uh, with the players and so forth that, that are you know, potentially involved.
0: So let me ask this, I'm, I'm going to pitch it to Monica, um you knew this was a case involving what we call post-conviction meaning that somebody was sitting in prison had claimed innocence you knew that the bite mark was not ricky davis i mean for the both of you how did it feel i'm assuming you've never worked on a case like this that you're trying to figure out who did that bite mark belong to the dna but you know was ricky davis Actually, innocent. I mean, what it, was there any difference in the way you felt about this case in terms of working on it?
3: Well, it was the first case that we had ever worked on. Um, that was the point was to exonerate someone as well as identify another suspect. Um, and so, I think it added, you know, a, an additional sense of, of urgency. I mean, you know, when we work genealogy cases, we like to pick them up, focus on them, figure it out, you know. But this was even more important to. You know, identify the suspect as quickly as possible. How about you, Kirk?
1: Um, yeah, it's same same as Monica. It's just it, you know this was a, a very interesting case in being our only exoneration that we've worked. But not only to you know exonerate the, a person that is actually in custody, uh, you know which is huge obviously, but also to potentially identify the actual uh, the actual perpetrator.
2: The thing I'd like to say is that, so we're, we're having this conversation and to someone who doesn't know, it might seem kind of dry. I mean, it's probably frankly, because we're talking about something. That, I didn't
0: think it was dry, but that's Well,
2: okay. I'm just saying is that everybody's talking about things that they did, but what they're not saying is that it, this is an extraordinary turn in uh, uh, forensic evidence to, to uh, uh, just a few years ago, this didn't exist, um, the ability to do this. And at um, about the time that we're talking about when, when this work is being done, there is a handful of cases throughout the United States that are either being solved or in this case being reinvestigated and then um, the, the, the correct, the, the actual person being identified who did it And um, in my county, which is not um, a county of 200,000 next to to Sacramento County, at one point we had 10% of the genetic genealogy homicide cases that were solved in the United States. Your county has a significantly higher percentage of that. So I think it's important that the people, it's like Kirk and Monica, they're kind of downplaying a little bit in terms of uh, uh, the work that they did but this is huge change in in law enforcement and forensic evidence and very few people uh very few offices at this time had the ability to do it and i think it's important to 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 note that this is a big deal it's a very big deal to be able to to identify from a in the golden state killer it was a really big deal but in a case like this where you have somebody who's been sitting for more than 10 years in custody wrongfully convicted of a murder he had nothing to do with.
0: Right, and I think it's, you know, for me, Vern, I'm just gonna say this, when, when Angel had completed her work, at least in terms of, you know, refuting that it was Connie Dahl, refuting that it was Ricky Davis, knowing that we had a, a male profile, the question is, to me was, okay, well, whose is it? Because, you know, is it somebody that Ricky Davis knew Or is it somebody that's completely separate? And is Ricky Davis actually innocent? And for, I'm just gonna speak for myself, you know, in 30 plus years of this business, it was, it was, it gave me a heartache to think that somebody was convicted of a crime that he did not commit. So um, I was not only excited, but proud to partner with your office, the Northern California Innocence Project, um, and our in and our lab and, and everyone else to try to figure out the answer because you know at the end of the day that's what we do right we're seeking the truth wherever it leads us so um, I think from Kirk and Monica's perspective you know I, I'm assuming that there was a little bit extra like you say Monica urgency but pressure um, given the complexities that sometimes you find with building these family trees right
1: No, absolutely. I mean, that's you know, I think Vern, you know, put it very succinctly there of the this you know, it's obviously very gratifying whenever you solve a case, but you know, this this one you know is just was just doubly gratifying in the fact that uh, you know, as you say, somebody wrongfully convicted uh, was 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 exonerated. So yeah, it's the uh, you know probably the most uh, gratifying I've ever felt on 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 a case.
0: Where did that genealogy lead your office and where does that stand right now?
2: Well, and because of the, the, we have a, a suspect that's in custody, uh, charged um, uh, with the murder. Um, and under circumstances that we now know, not only it, it, that it was, we can, we we didn't exonerate Ricky by saying we can't prove Ricky did it. We exonerated ultimately all the people here, as well as the people involved in the investigation. They were able to prove not only Ricky didn't do it, but that someone else did. And they did it without Ricky's participation and he had nothing to do with it. Um, And uh, part of that was uh, the, the, the victim's daughter, Autumn, who went through this horrific thing of finding her mother in a brutal murder. Uh, some of the way she was interviewed, I think now I look at it and very bothered by the way she was interviewed as well. And the implication by law enforcement that she was somehow involved in this, um, this murder. And, and we know that she was not. And when she was interviewed that night, she told a story about how she had, uh, uh, she was angry at her mom, she was wandering, walk, walking around, Uh, She's a typical teenager, a 13-year-old teenager, and uh, she met these three boys and she gave full or partial names for those three of being Calvin, Michael, and a Steve or Brian. And I don't want to go into all the specifics in terms of the names. But those three individuals were never actually identified by law enforcement back in 1985, or going forward into uh, 19, uh, when the case was reopened and, and he went to trial. They were never actually identified, those three individuals. But using, uh, uh, going back, as I said before, the, 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 using genetic genealogy as a lead, um, the case was reinvestigated, the various people. So they take the lead, and the information that they were able to come up with and go back and they identify a name uh, as a a potential person within the family tree that seems to match uh, uh, a name that she gave and uh, back on that night and then reinvestigating, re-interviewing and being able to to definitively say we got the wrong person.
0: Let me just make one comment because you made the point about, you know, Autumn was kind of, under that cloud of suspicion, as being potentially involved, and I think that's one of the highlights, at least for me, on a lot of these cases, whether it's regular traditional DNA or genealogy, is that oftentimes for years people are put under a cloud of suspicion. You know, I remember other cases of genealogy where you know the there's whispers through the whole community that this guy must have done it or that person must have done it, and um, clearly the genealogy and the DNA in this case really showed that, that that cloud was was wrong. But Vern, let me ask you this. When you really got the answer and you, and ultimately you guys knew that it was not Ricky and, and that he was in fact innocent, walk us through the listeners. Like, did you interact with Mr. Davis after you found out the truth?
2: Yeah, it, it, over time. So you, you start with the presumption that someone who's been convicted of, gone to trial and convicted of a murder and sentenced for that, in your mind, in 30 years of being a prosecutor, it, 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 and you have the same—you—you you have a presumption in your mind that that um, uh, they did—they de- did it. And then in this case, Angel's work, and then Kurt's, Monica's, Joe's, and Sandra's work. You, over time, you—I started looking at this and and increasingly felt as though something's wrong here. And I think at one point, I'm trying to remember it, it, who it was. I think it may have been my my deputy DA that did the, the hearing with Angel, he conveyed to me that his belief that, that Angel doesn't think Ricky did it, the device on the forensic evidence, and that I'm listening to this and it's like, and I'm bothered by the way this investigation was handled before, the way the interviews were done. Cumulatively, eventually you get to this point where then we've identified somebody else and the evidence looks more and more like this person was involved, actually did it and that Ricky had nothing to do with it. So uh, I made contact and went and talked to Ricky while he was in custody. Um, it was a, I mean, it's a surreal thing to go talk to a convicted murderer. And um, he was very emotional. He, I told him that uh, we had been working on the case. I told him that I'd reached the conclusion that uh, in my mind, we could not retry him because we did not have sufficient evidence to believe that he did it. And that increasingly, I believed he had nothing to do with it and that we would be able to uh, to prove it. Um, he was, as I said, he was very emotional. He, he was crying and he said, I've been telling everybody that since 1985, I had nothing to do with this and no one believes me. And he said uh, that, uh, he said, "Everybody in here, who I'm referring to in custody, everybody says they didn't do it, and they're all lying. But I'm telling the truth. I really had nothing to do with this. I told, I cooperated. I told them the truth from the very beginning. And the truth of it is, he he did tell the truth. Everything that he said from the first time he was contacted throughout, um, we were by reinvestigating him, and a talented group of, uh, of both forensic people." uh scientists uh uh, investigators we were able to go back and prove that he was telling the truth from the very beginning and um we told them i told him that it would take a little bit to get him out of custody but that it would happen you know relatively quickly because it was an actual conviction we had to unwork that and get the court to order him to be released um we asked the judge to do uh which is extraordinary i've never done it before that, particularly in a homicide case or a murder case, is to for the judge to make a finding of factual innocence, um, which he did. And the judge indicated the same thing, that he'd never done that before. Um, and it was a, you know, it, it's, it, as a prosecutor who, you know, everybody thinks that our, um, all we want to do is put people in jail. It's, is it, it it's a gratifying a thing as you can possibly do as a prosecutor to get, the wrong guy out of jail to get him out of custody um, because he never should have been convicted of this. Um, and there's all sorts of mistakes. It's easy to look at it in, you know, hindsight and say, well, they should have done this or they should have done that. But the practical reality is, I mean, i I remember vividly standing there talking to him. I made a commitment to myself that the way he was, the way Connie was interviewed, was the main reason why. Uh, he was, uh, he, the, those three times, that was the main reason why he was convicted. He was, he was, he, he, Connie was interviewed using a technique that pro- has a high, much higher probability of producing a false confession than, than the other types of techniques that should be used. And she did and said what they wanted her to say um, during the course of that. And then she stuck to that and resulted in his conviction. And I, as I said, I made a commitment that I was going to do everything I could to change that and to prevent investigators from being trained to to do interviews in that manner.
0: Well, you kind of mentioned that you know this was kind of a first. I mean, there was it was a first in California where genetic genealogy was used to exonerate somebody. I think it was the only second in the u s. And it may well be that it's the only one in the country where somebody was still imprisoned for a crime that he or she did not commit. So when I, as I close, I wanna just kind of ask each of, the, each of the guests here, I'll start with Angel, I mean, now in hindsight, you know, knowing the work you did, which was pivotal, and um, I think everybody agrees you were kind of the hero in all of it. How do you feel about being involved in the technology that was used in this case?
4: Um, looking back um, to when the cases were first assigned, and my coworker took the other case. Um, she actually ended up with what I guess you could call the easier case. But I think I was lucky enough to end up with the one that has probably been one of the most rewarding out of my career. Um, not only in the teamwork that went into it, I loved working with Melissa at the Innocence Project. Um, of course, I worked. I loved working with Kirk and Monica. And this is not the first case I've worked on with the Eldorado County District Attorney's Office. So the team effort that went into it was great. Um, but I'd also say that this is the case that's had the most direct effect on someone. And that's kind of new to me. I feel like I have an indirect effect. I help a victim get closure if the evidence can put a suspect away, but this was a case that actually directly affected someone and their lives. So that is, was kind of new to me. So I definitely would say it is one of the most rewarding of my career so far.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for all the work you did. How about you, Monica? We'll go to you next.
3: I agree with Angel. It's very rewarding to be to be a part of it. Um, you know, the one of the most meaningful cases that that we've worked on, and meaningful in a different way. You know, they're all important, but um, you know, to to know that. This was going to help an innocent person get out of custody was, um, you know, very, very important. And I'm, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to be a part of it.
1: Excellent,
0: Kirk. How about you?
1: Yeah, it was just, uh, it, it was, you know, fantastic to have the opportunity to help on this case. And it just, you know, I've had a been in law enforcement a long time, and you know, to me, this is the biggest evolution of law enforcement since DNA itself. Um, and it just, you know, by actually doing, uh, exonerating somebody uh, just, you know, helps further prove that, uh, how important investigative genetic genealogy is.
0: Excellent, thank you so much. And Byrne, how about you?
2: Well, I just echo everything else everyone has said and what I've said before. I, I am just very proud of uh, the decisions that were made along the way to most importantly, to get the right people you know, from, from, uh, from your office, from my office that were uh, willing to look at something without the bias of just presuming that this person was guilty and working to try to prove that he was guilty. And instead they, they went above and beyond to say, let's prove what really happened. And I don't, I don't think there's any higher calling you can have for someone in this profession is to say, uh, you put your time and energy into proving what actually happened as opposed to just proving something that you know that someone else believed and uh i think the, you know you emory i do remember i don't know how well you remember that the meeting that we had about the genetic genealogy where i sat in your office and it was um we're waiting because part of my office went to the wrong place i don't know if you remember and so we're we're like waiting and it's like I don't know anymore that this is the right guy, but we need to figure out who the right person is and what actually happened. And that's what happened. And I I greatly appreciate um, you and your people for for working with us on this.
0: Well, let me just kind of say my two cents at the end here, which is, first of all, I was honored to be involved in it. But if you remember, Vern, when we there was a press conference you held in, in February of 2020, I think it was announcing all of this. and my I used a quote at the time, which is truth, never heard the cause that is just, and it's true. I mean, at the end of it all, that's the beauty of DNA, Um, not just the traditional work that Angel did, but also this new evolutionary genetic genealogy. And so it's just, um, I'm just uh, was grateful that we were able to help you and help Mr. Davis ultimately. So I just want to thank all of you. I want to thank you for sharing your insight and your experience. For the listeners, this is the final episode of the exoneration of Ricky Davis. If you missed part one, I encourage you all to go to listen to InsideCrimeFiles.com. I am anne Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.